I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We are with the fantastic Michael Shahan. Michael is a professional marriage and family therapist in Kansas City. That's how you say it in Kansas City. Yeah, if you if you're a football fan, it's Kansas City. Yes, that's exactly how everybody says it. Yes, <laughs> it gets a little awkward at times in conversations, but we get used to it. <laughs> How's it going? This is our first time actually getting a chance to meet Michael. I asked a question, how are you doing? And then I stepped on that. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, it was a great joke. I have heard tell that uh, the therapist business is booming in recent <laughs> years. Yes. Fortunately slash unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's a good time for your checkbook, but it's not necessarily a good time for your own <laughs> mental health. Correct. It's just good. It's big old gravy train ever since the COVID mm. <laughs> pandemic. It was it, like, honestly, the summer after COVID started, most everything was virtual, but that was like the most clients I had ever seen up until then. Mm-hmm. It was wild. A lot of people switched to virtual and a lot of other people started trickling in just needing therapy because I mean, duh. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. I remember seeing this like New York times comic recently, like during the lockdown, it had like a therapist laying on a little couch with their client in the notebook on the ground, just staring at the ceiling. Like, I don't know what to do either, man. It was so spot on. It's great. Is that ever just a worthwhile thing to say to, to, to folks they're in the room or they're on, they're doing a session with you and you're just like, I don't yeah, know either. I'm, I'm, I do I'm, that. I'm with you there. I do that. I think it's honest. Like as a therapist, inherently I have this kind of position of power. Right. And people want to like, want me to tell them what to do or how to act and want almost expect me to know everything. And I don't. And sometimes it's uncomfortable for people to realize that they can actually get upset. Like, well, then what am I paying you for? (laughs) Which is interesting, but it's, it's like, I mean, I don't know everything. I feel stuck too, but sometimes even speaking to my own stuckness in session can highlight what the client is feeling. Especially my nineness to kind of absorb what they are feeling and how they're reacting without like in speaking to that can actually be really helpful. I want to, I want to talk to you about being a nine as a therapist. The first thing ever, just to build on what you were just saying, what is your target or, or just the target in therapy in general for those who might, you know, have, haven't ever entered into that space? You apparently aren't just there to solve all their problems. <laughs> yes. what, 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 is, what, what is the big target when you get together with someone? Oh, that is a huge question. I like that. So target, like, what am I, what's the goal? What do I? Yeah. If, if things go really well Mm. over the course of a few months, uh, what's, what's the win? Yeah. Okay. I like that. So I think I would, as as in a small answer, uh, self-awareness and self-compassion. Okay. Um, I think that's a big, and which creates this integration of our personality and all the different parts of us, which so often 
anxiety and stress and lots of mental health issues come from a lack of integration with different parts of us that we try to shove away or that we want to be this way or we shame ourselves rather than, and that creates more problems actually. So to sort of be able to be self-aware and self-compassionate um, changes so much. And that turns into this ability to regulate ourselves, um, not project our pain onto other people. Um, a, a lot of people come in, they don't use this language but they're basically saying what I've always done no longer works. What do I do next? Like mm. I've always been this, I don't know. I've, I've used drugs before I've, I've been angry, but and that's got my needs met in a weird way. Like, right. Um, I would drink and it would make things feel better. I would do this. And, and, but now it's creating more harm than good. And I don't know how to stop kind of like it's I'm on this pattern, I'm on this train and it's derailing, but I don't know how to stop it. So what it's like the very new time for people, whether they're forced into that new time or, what they've always been doing is just getting old. A lot of life, life circumstances sort of shift them out of that. Like, what? yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Kind of what they're doing is no longer working for them, yeah. which is a beautiful place to bring the Enneagram in, honestly. Right. It, <laughs> it totally makes sense because <laughs> yes. it sounds like a sales pitch for the Enneagram. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. As I was talking, I was like, it kind of it kind of does, right? Yeah. Like your number helps you until it gets too, cranked up too high and then it right. creates problems. Yep. <laughs> And, and for a lot of people, the thing that the place where they start to experience actual growth is when the things that they, that used to work don't work anymore. Correct. They yep. have to figure yep. out something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's uh, uh, great suffering. <laughs> right. I don't know. Something bad happens in life or um, something shifts and they lose something and yeah, or just problems. A lot of times it's contextual, mm -hmm. not, not all the time, but Richard Rohr has a quote that I love the thing that the thing that changes us the most that breaks down our ego patterns are great love and great suffering. Mm. And that's so true. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Cause we just can't keep doing what we've always been doing. We just don't have the energy for it anymore. Right. And it just changes so much. Or in some cases it, it literally, you, you can't do it anymore. Like, like we know yes. so many threes that the thing that shifts them into mm. self-actualization is is when they can't reframe something anymore when they have a yeah or failure. their body shuts down threes right. and eights they just literally can't right. anymore <laughs> um i remember when i so my wife got diagnosed with cancer breast cancer last spring mm. and i remember when i found out i called a friend and i told him and the first thing he said to me was not helpful <laughs> he said god's got this Ugh. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh. and I think what I always would have done in my nineness, if it wasn't like, like, oh, thanks, man. I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. And just pretended. Right. Right. <laughs> Thank you. You were helpful. I right. appreciate you. Way but instead I said, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. But I just I was like, that doesn't help me right now. Right. Is what I said. <laughs> I was just so I just didn't have the energy to yeah. do what I always did. And I was like, oh, things went okay. He didn't hate me forever. Like, right. oh, interesting. And I was like forced into that place to learn that I can do things differently and still be okay and yeah. or even better for it. Yeah. Uh, what's your wife's name? Angie is her name. It, how's she doing? She's doing good. Yeah, I mean, active chemo and radiation are done like a week before Christmas a couple months ago. So that was cool. Now it's just kind of the long stretch of medicines to kind of keep it away, hopefully. And yeah, we're just sort of in the long stretch now. But as far as the worst of the worst, totally over. Nice. And she has really, really good prognosis. So they think it's gone. They can never say fully it's gone, right. but it's looking really, really good. So that's great. Good. <laughs> COVID cancer and counseling. That's, that's all the things hitting so you all at once. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, 
you already said it. You identify as a nine. Uh, yes. Do uh, you want to talk briefly just to give some background, like how you got into Enneagram and then how did you apply it to, to your practice? Yeah. Um, I heard about it during grad school. I heard of a podcast about it. Uh, the liturgists did their podcast and they did yeah. like a little song for each number. And I heard that. I was like, oh, I'm totally a seven is what I thought. Just first glance. Because I'm, I'm, I'm very extroverted, very excitable, very energetic. So like, I must be a seven. And then that was like, okay. And then it didn't really, I don't know. I didn't care as much. Um, but then post-grad school, one of my very first clients I ever had mentioned, um, have you heard of the Enneagram? I was like, yeah, I think I'm a seven. Um, and then they said that they had recently listened. It was a couple, a client system. And the wife said, I listened to this podcast and I heard about my husband, who's this number. And everything clicked. Everything he did made sense. And I felt so much more compassionate for him. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I saw in front of me this, like the Enneagram create compassion and communication with the couple. It's like, wow, this thing just did my job for me. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, and so always looking for the easy way out, you know, as a nine, just kidding. Um, I, I, um, they, I went and listened to that episode and I was like, wow, that is them. That makes so much sense. And then I listened to some more and learned some about my, yeah, I don't know exactly what happened next. It kind of, I did some more exploring. I was like, ah, I'm not a seven. And I learned in grad school, the value of sadness and shifted that in me quickly to pay attention to that. And I don't think mm. if I was a seven, I'd be able to make that shift like that. Sure. And I realized I would like to be spontaneous, but I am not. Mm. And so that shifted it for me. And I was like, oh, I'm a two. Lots of therapists are two, like helping people. And then I told my wife about the Enneagram. I was like, you should read about it. And here's this, and I'm a two. <laughs> so my wife's a one, very blunt, very direct. <laughs> And she said, so I was reading about the Enneagram and you think you're a two, right? It's like, yeah, what's about to come? And she said, um, one of the main characteristics is that they're generous and you're not generous. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily I was in a place where I could hear that. I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm really stingy. You're mm -hmm. right. And then so she said, she said, you're a nine. All you, this, this stuff you talk about all the time, getting along and being at peace and being comfortable. Like this is all you ever talk about. I was like, Ugh. and I remember thinking, anything but nine. Oh no. That's that, the last thing I want to do. That was the one be, man. You should have known yes, from that. <laughs> that ick factor. I yep. teach people that. I'm like, if you have this like really uncomfortable reaction, like what number do you not want to be out mm -hmm. of these? And that's probably yours. And then I talked to somebody who I randomly met somebody at a restaurant that I hadn't seen in years. And he had like taken all these Instagram classes and I sat down and talked with him and he introduced the type, the idea of uh, the counter type mm -hmm. subtype social nine. And then I read about that. I was like, that is it. <laughs> I am convinced. Oh, but then, I mean, for years, there was still a, maybe I was never a nine the whole time. Maybe I'm actually this number, maybe, which is a very nine thing to do. Exactly. But just started using it. When I saw my clients create such change and then felt the compassion for my wife increase when I learned about her oneness and why she pushes so hard and has to be doing things and is critical. And I was like, oh, it just felt that compassion shift toward her. Mm -hmm. um, I remember thinking like, this is something I need to use with clients. And so I just started reading and listening to podcasts and discussing with clients. Some clients knew their number and just, I don't know, a few thousand hours of discussing it with clients later. And here I am today sort of becoming this kind of Enneagram therapist guy, which is really cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Speaking of which, it's I imagine the more that folks get into Ingram, they probably want folks like yourself. I've I've heard just a brief desire to create community or even to inspire others yeah. to do more work with uh, the Ingram in their in their therapy practice. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Just in terms of the discipline, in terms of the job, in terms of like, do, do you have connections with others? And 
other therapists. Yeah, who are using Enneagram. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I see all the time people on, I'm in a lot of Enneagram Facebook groups and more and more people are like, hey, I want a therapist, but how do I find one that knows the Enneagram? Seeing more and more interest in that. And just as I develop my own Instagram and all this stuff, combining Enneagram and therapy, more and more people reach out regularly, weekly, almost every other day, like, hey, how do I find a therapist who knows the Enneagram? Because it's such a valuable tool and it gives shared language and understanding, like the shortcut to understanding of your client. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually teach a course. I developed a course for therapists on how to use the Enneagram, what it is, how to use it in your practice, ways it can combine with theories that we were taught in grad school. Um, And I love that. And that has started to do everyone who's taken my class. So we keep this community on Slack. Yeah. And eventually my dream is to create like a database. So anybody any state or wherever they're at can say, Hey, how do I find a therapist near me? Who's Enneagram trained? Um, I think that's like a a dream goal of mine. It's takes a lot more work than I thought. And I've given up multiple times, but um, I think that the the desire and the interest in combining them is growing all the time, which is really cool to see because it's so helpful. It just makes perfect sense to use in the therapy context, honestly. Agreed. One of the things that seems to me to be a real misstep in in just pitching Enneagram is the language that some will use that it's a discipline that's thousands and thousands of years old. And in my experience, that that may be the case, but it is rapidly developing and evolving and becoming more of a a tool that can be used in a contemporary context. And I find that much more helpful to say this is something that should be evaluated as though it were a, a theory just coming on the scene that, that has explanatory force and power. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, different Enneagram books have, I feel like they all have their different take on where the origins of the Enneagram came from. And, and to me, to me, it doesn't matter. Like sure, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It doesn't really matter exactly where it came from. In my opinion, um, I've seen it change lives. So I'm going to keep using it regardless of who invented it or where or how long the symbol has existed in culture or whatever. Right. We still use Freudian theories and and systems in in the world of psychology. And that guy was a dirtbag. (laughs) So (laughs) in the words of Robin Williams, did enough cocaine to kill a small horse. Small horse. Yes. (laughs) Love it. Love that movie so much. Well, dear listener, what we're going to do is two things. We're going to talk about using Enneagram uh, both professionally as a counselor and what it might look like for us as just mere mortals to, to use it in our everyday lives and conversations to help our friends. That'll be part one. Uh, part two of our conversation, we're going to delve into some of the underlying feelings of each of the types and just talk about what our type's underlying feeling is and how to wrestle with that. And so that's going to be where we're going. So you guys ready to go? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm so ready. Just starting there, I, I'm really interested in this because, of course, I'm an untrained person, um, and I tend to find myself wanting to to help people. I'm a one, as you know, and Enneagram is just one of these handy tools, but but I'm positive there are all sorts of places that I might miss st- step yeah, um, and that there are pitfalls if I wasn't aware. For somebody like myself or somebody who's who's been into Enneagram for, let's say, a few years, you probably shouldn't be counseling people with Enneagram if you haven't really done a whole lot. But mm-hmm. if you've been in it for four or five years, and are, and but you're not a trained professional, would you have any advice to that person about how to use it in their conversations if it were the case that mm. you know they were trying to help people? So somebody who's not a therapist but wants to help the, use the Enneagram to help people, kind yeah. of, is that what you're saying? Right. Y- yeah. Um, 
I don't know. That's there's there's one one big piece that comes to mind is because I also do some Enneagram like coaching on the side that's more direct coaching. Mm-hmm. And what I do with that is I stay away from any sort of heavy trauma. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm training all sorts of ways as a therapist to work with trauma, different modalities, ways to help heal the brain and all the stuff. And I don't use that with my Enneagram coaching. I think a lot of therapists, uh, coaches can misstep when they think they can handle trauma stuff. Yeah. Because trauma is a whole beast. It's, I mean, it's it's activates our whole nervous system and our whole body, and it's our brain can't tell now from then, and all this stuff happens, and it can become very unsafe and re-traumatizing if you're not careful. Right. Um, our, our constant refrain is that trauma breaks all the rules, and like the, the, mm, the thing that you need to do if you have unaddressed trauma is go find a therapist. Hundred percent. The enneagram can be helpful, but I think if you it cannot, it can point us back to what was traumatic for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, yeah, it can get really dicey when yep. it comes to that. Yep. Um, that's the first piece that comes to my mind for sure. What are the earmarks of that? If if somebody stumbles across mm. trauma, I, I actually, I wouldn't even know like uh, where that line might be. Yes. I think uh, nowadays as Instagram, Insta therapy becomes more and more popular, people, it, it's almost swung from educating people about trauma to like everything is trauma. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you say hello when you meet somebody, that's a trauma response. It's like, wait, like hold on. That's not <laughs> just like overly identifying with that, which is, I think it's important to realize that lots of things can be traumatic that we didn't realize could be before. I think there's an importance of that, but swinging that far that direction is a little excessive in my opinion. Right. But when there's real trauma and there's like somebody's bringing up something in my, so the the biggest difference is, is when you're looking back at a memory, if it's traumatic, you're, it's, it feels like it's happening versus it has happened to you. Yeah. It's no longer a narrative memory. It's this physiological memory. Your brain has not like the essence of trauma is not fully processing through something, whether it's uh, I like the phrase too much, too fast, too soon. So life happens too much, too fast, too soon. Um, and we, our brains are meant to process what happens to us and make meaning of it because that's how we survive and that's what we do as humans. But when we can't because uh, there's too much, our life's at in danger, uh, we're not safe, uh, there's, we're not in an emotionally safe environment, we're physically in danger, whatever, our brain cannot process through it like it's supposed to. And when that happens, it gets stuck in us. And if you were to put somebody to brain scan decades after a traumatic event that was not processed, and they thought about it and remembered it, um, you have the brain scan, all the sort of experiential parts of our brain would light up and your brain cannot tell the difference between something that has mm. happened and is happening now. And so that's kind of the essence of trauma. It is like, I am now a child, like my brain is, and I just floods my body with panic and trying to keep me alive. Um, and it does not know that I am safe now. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's a, a big overarching view of, of what trauma is, but that can come out in dissociating, come out in um, addiction. Addiction is almost always correlated with trauma. Um, huge uh, emotions that don't seem to quote fit the scenario. Mm. Yeah, there's a, not a lot of, um, when our brain shifts into that place of uh, panic mode, language starts to shut down, our sense of time starts to shut down, our ability to connect with others starts to shut down. Um, those kinds of things. And so even talking with somebody about the Enneagram when they're in this, I don't know if a trauma comes up for them, then it's just not going to be helpful. They're not going to hear it. They're going to fit everything that you're saying. Everything that is happening is going to fit in this narrative, this negative narrative they've already created. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like this experience that they're having, everything you try to do, if it's just talking, will be filtered through that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. And a lot in the way that, that like we, 
we see the world through a particular type of lens. For you and mm. I, it's a it's a it's a nine ish lens. For Jeff, it's yes. a one ish lens. Like each of us experiences a certain lens, and when trauma is is at play, that becomes the lens. The trauma lens. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And we can use our Enneagram number to deal with our trauma, mm-hmm. with our wounds. Like uh, I like nines will most readily, if something traumatic happens, will most likely shut down first than any more than any other number. Shut down, sure. pull back, dissociate. Whereas like, I don't know, like an eight or three might take action. Sure. Um, and, and it doesn't mean they're handling it better. They can still very much not process it. Right. Um, but there does that make like each, we sort of deal with our own wounds in our own Enneagram way. Mm-hmm. And so our Enneagram number in a sense actually can point out what is more easily traumatizing for us sure. or how we've handled trauma in the past. But it, it, it creates its own, especially in the moment when we are triggered, when we're hooked on those memories and our brain can't tell the difference as its own thing. <laughs> our sort of upper brain is not running the show anymore at all. Right. I'm really excited to see some of the stuff, uh, the overlap with uh, brain study and Enneagram theory. Um, I don't know if you have any insight into that, but or if that's still just kind of, you know, those are unexplored oceans right there. As, as you're talking, that's the thing that's going through through my head is 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 trauma like a is it a right hemisphere experience, a left hemisphere? Is it all over your It's your actually brain? a both. It's the left and right cannot communicate a lot oh, of in a lot okay. of ways. It's it's so the time the part. Yeah, the time part that says you are here, this is not there anymore, that cannot communicate with the right side, the experiential side. Oh. So so does that make so it's like it's like stuck and you can't there's actually uh, there's a whole thing. It's called um, neurofeedback. It's a therapy, very expensive, fancy therapy thing where you hook up all these diodes to your head and stuff, and they can actually measure an increased electrical activity between your hemispheres when there's been more trauma healing done, which is fascinating to me. Really? <laughs> so it's like um, your brain isn't working together well. And I don't know we can, I mean, there's one piece, I don't know if we want to connect this now or with the later piece. Um, you know, have you heard of Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel at all? That sounds familiar. He does a lot of, he's almost like one of the most uh, well-known researched uh, about uh, trauma in the brain, especially around with kids. And he's just done tons, multiple books. And we read multiple of his books in grad school. And if you're a therapist, you probably know who he is. He actually spoke. He was the first speaker at this Enneagram International Conference thing two years ago. And I was excited to hear him talk. And he said that in, in all their study of the brain, people tend to have a well-worn path of emotions or he says something like over 90% of people will either favor anger, sadness, or fear as an initial reaction, Hmm. which fits the Enneagram, right? And then he said, and then he said, people will either focus on other people themselves or themselves and other people. Boom. Line those up. That's, that's, that's your Enneagram numbers, each center. And then the other focus, self-focus and kind of both in the middle. Yeah. And I was so excited when I heard him say that. Like, yes, I knew it. I knew this correlation. And it just, yeah, I, I love that. So I think that's as far as I know, that's that makes sense. But I don't know if there's lots of studies going on about the brain, the Enneagram directly, as far as I know. I'm not sure. But I know that I love that piece. It just, I use that to teach therapists, actually. Yep. Nice. I think the language that we're using to talk about what's going on in our inner life and our consciousness and how we come to the world, it, it like Enneagram just ends up being, as we say all the time, it's just a language for talking about that systematizes a bunch of these things in a handy little tool probably is going to get, if it's, if there's something real here, it's going to get spoken of in a variety of different ways mm, by a variety yes. of different people. If it's and real, if it's true here, then it should be true everywhere. Yeah. I would imagine. So yeah. 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 So that, I, I suppose that ends up being 
something that's worth noting. I've I've been in a conversation with a gentleman who publishes in magazines, kind of like dismissing and and calling into question, even ridiculing uh, Enneagram studies. It's really easy to do to say, well, of course, this is astrology, isn't it? Because it's in mm, the same mm. section in the bookstore. Mm. Um, you'll be, and that's that's a winner, by the way. That's that's just logic all day long. Right there. <laughs> it's in the same section. Um, it's, it's the same it section. Be, it must be the same. That is some that's um, some good logic. <laughs> Do you, do you have just thoughts on where Enneagram stands in the contemporary, you know, world of uh, therapy and psychology and the rest? Does, does it even have a place? Um, has it, does it, does it have a worthwhile, you know, advocate, you know? Um, yeah. That's, that's a good question. Um, I think it's becoming more and hopefully what I'm doing with my work helps it become more utilized yeah. and stuff. And, and I've spoken at my own grad school after I graduated recently asked me to speak about it and I don't know just reaching out to schools locally and other therapy schools and teaching offering them discounts for my course and just I don't know getting it out there I hope that plays a part in helping normalize it more but I've definitely seen that because I look at astrology and I just immediately roll my eyes I'm like like that is it makes I remember hearing somebody say well if the if the moon can affect the ocean then why can't stars affect our personality I'm thinking like that is not not even close to like how I, I don't get it. I don't know. It sounds sound to me. I, it's, it's not. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it's the worst. Yeah, but I think you could equally you could use both equally horribly if you would like to. Yes, you can use the enneagram and you can use astrology to justify horrible things that you do. Right? Like people can do that. I would like for them to not do that. And I think that's it can kind of taint both of them when if that happens but um there's not a lot of there's actually a lady who actually there's a lady who i'm talking to who does um, research on the enneagram and sex and she's did this uh, uh interviewed hundreds of people and she I, I helped her get some sources through my instagram account or whatever and she said if i can show distinct differences in how each nine numbers approaches sexuality then that kind of as a whole proves that there are nine different patterns of, of people and how they think and how sure. our brains work, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Sure. So that that's cool to be, to have helped her with that. And she's, there's a group of people I think discussing that, but so I think little by little, you're going to see studies trickle in more and more. Mm. Yeah. And I'm still going to use it. I don't know if, if a study were to say something like the Enneagram isn't real, we're not, I don't know. I don't even know if that's possible, but yeah, seeing that the usefulness it has to help people turn inward and be aware of themselves and, and understand who they are, like, then that's enough. I think Yep. like people who say I mistyped for a year, it was a waste of time. Like, I don't think it was like, you're so much internal work and looking at themselves that you would have not have done otherwise. Like, I don't think that's any wasted time at all. Right. That's a great opposite side of the coin to where I'd go. It's if you're doing introspective work, you're doing introspective work and yes. you're getting a chance to talk and find out who you are. That's that's valuable in and of itself, even if the tool gets dismissed later on. Yes. There's so 100%. many things. I mean, there's uh, for for many of us, there's so many tools that we used while we were growing up that were really helpful at the time for that season. And there's nothing wrong with moving away from them and going to your next thing. And yeah. we have a good friend who's doing that with Enneagram right now. God bless them. You know, it's, uh, that's a, that's it. It did what it was supposed to do. The secondary thing is, and this is this is my field. Is here's how theory works. Theory is never theory is not disconfirmed. Really, theory generally is replaced by better theory. Mm. So if you have a better idea for motive, pitch it. Mm. Get, bring it strong. I would love to hear other theories about motive. 
there's just not a whole lot out there. And I actually have done that work for, well, okay, what do we got? Mm. Uh, you know, and, and Enneagram just routinely shines yes, uh, with it does. depth, insight, predictive power, um, et cetera. So um, that's why I got you. You got any thoughts on that, Teach? I was just thinking about the, um, the difference between someone who spends a year on themselves and discovers that they have mistyped themselves and decides that, that this is an invaluable tool versus someone who spends a year living in being mm. mistyped and doesn't discover that it's right. that they're mistyped <laughs> like like there, there's huge value in doing the work that makes you figure out that you you you've studied the wrong type yes there's, there's huge, huge value. value in that and i think it takes a lot of like courage to yeah. say oh i was wrong the whole time that yeah. is like uncomfortable yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah and even if it means yeah. you discard the enneagram as a as a studying tool as a result of it, I, mm. I still think the the work that's been done is still yeah. valuable because you're not just saying, "Oh, this is the way I am," ha ha, and <laughs> and using it as an excuse for your bad behavior. Yes. Yep, I did a, a Enneagram meme series on that a long time ago. <laughs> Have you guys seen that meme series? The, the stonks. The guy says stonks, and he's like making really poor oh, yeah, money yeah. decisions, uh -huh. yep. right? I, I changed that. I said I made it say immigrams, <laughs> and, and it was each like I'm just mean. I'm an eight. That's how I am. Yeah. And just gotta like stop using the enneagram to justify your negative behaviors. Yeah. You're just if you're a jerk, just say you're a jerk. Don't pretend it's because <laughs> you're this way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that one was. I was worried people would get backlash on that, but people seem to like it. I'm sure, I like it. Is there is there a shorthand name for that of of using a theory? I mean, of all sorts. I mean, people do this for religion or their political party or you know, their Ooh. economic status for to justify their behavior. This is why I do this is because I'm a 19 year old. This is why I do this because whoa, I'm, you know kind of I mean? like a yeah. I don't know if there is a phrase for that, but sort of a a, a pro, not it wouldn't be projecting. <laughs> scapegoating your own uncomfortable yeah. horror. Yeah, I don't know. There's got to be a phrase. We can make up a phrase for that. That'd it's be a, awesome. It's just, a, it's just a flashing red light of immaturity. Um, <laughs> yes, so that too. <laughs> you, uh, well, I mean, it sounds like, and I'm not familiar with this field, so it sounds like you are a pioneer in some ways of, mm. of using this in therapy. So I imagine that one of the great things about uh, being a pioneer is you get to make all the mistakes first. <laughs> right <laughs> so what what are some of the places where you, like you jumped in you're using Enneagram in therapy and you're like oh that doesn't work or you know do you have those sorts of moments or things that you've stepped away from I think I'm probably too cautious to <laughs> jump that far I mean it's such a I moved pretty slow in it it took man it took months and months and months of it before I even put anything on my Instagram about the Enneagram mm. um but when I I don't know it's just I there's simultaneously this like drive in me. I've, I don't know if I hear this phrase of like, I'm a nine of my foot on the gas of a three and my foot, another foot on the brake of a six <laughs> of like, <laughs> of like at the same time. And so wanting to move forward and do this and make cool things happen and spread the word, but also like, what if I do all of this wrong mm -hmm. and it's wrong and I make a fool of myself on the internet publicly and everybody hates me for it yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff. So that's an interesting, but I think honestly think I can't think of anything off the top of my head and it's probably because I don't know. I'm pretty slow moving with it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. 
or I've done some horrible things and don't even realize it yet, <laughs> which is another option. <laughs> good and wise to to be slow to move on on uh, well, something thank like you for this. that. Yeah. Positive reframe. Yeah. <laughs> if I was picking a pioneer, it, it would be nines. I would go in and just start blowing things up and go, Dude. whoops, okay, I'll I'll fix that. I can fix that. That's my superpower. I fix things. Sorry about that. Uh, I would I would the whole phrase, uh, you rather what is it? Like I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, no. I think it's absolute opposite. Yeah, That's yeah. the worst phrase I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't even like to ask for permission. <laughs> How about neither? Yeah. <laughs> well, on, on the flip side, have, have there been places where the Enneagram was the thing? It was the tool that you really needed. It was the screwdriver. Nobody else was using this, but this thing, man, that, that popped open that door. Man, honestly, a lot more yeah. than I would care to admit to myself as a nine. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. it's a lot of really cool. It's so it's so much insight and so much shared language and understanding. And I remember one of the first times, I mean, just doubted myself for so long using it that I do I really know anything? People out there know way more than me. Why would I talk about this? And I had a couple come in for the first time, um, and I asked them if they knew the enneagram. It was like the first session, and like, yeah, we we know we're pretty familiar. I'm a seven, and he's a five. And I said, okay, can I make some guesses about what happens in your relationship? And they said, yeah. And I just start talking and they were just blown away. Right. Like, how do you know? You've never even met us. I was like, wow, maybe I do know what I'm talking about. Maybe this is a real thing. And that, that was a, a cool moment for me to like, oh, I think it was, yeah, I don't know. I gained a lot of confidence in what I, I'm just, in how I teach and led to a lot of that from even that moment. And then more and more like that, just realizing how much it helps and helping people discover these kind of, parts of themselves that they normally can't see and giving language that's there's also a part of that kind of selfishly like as a nine who's as a therapist i'm supposed to challenge people it's part of my job but sometimes it's uncomfy Mm -hmm. and so like the enneagram would say that you're acting out of fear right now i'm not saying that the enneagram is it's almost like this kind of distance (laughs) from my kept them happy with me sort of i don't know that's one way that i've especially early on i'm getting better at being more direct nowadays but that was nice to have that as a tool and it's like, you can, this relationship, I'm on your side. I'm not attacking you. I'm helping you see this thing that this, I don't know if that makes sense. That was, I think oh, that's yeah. helpful at times. Yeah. And it confidence too. I mean, just trusting my own gut as therapist is hard. Like, I think this is what's happening. And, but what if it's not like, I don't know the Enneagram says I can, that's probably the case. So, right. I don't know. Yeah. It helps me dig into that stuff that even I wouldn't dig into normally. It's, it's almost like a, like a, a shield in a way. Like it's, <laughs> sure. it's like I find I'm I'm not a professional therapist, but I am an armchair therapist. I'm a I'm a barista, and uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm just one of the people that uh, a lot of my friends have used me for advice. And and especially as we do things out in public and and talking to strangers, particularly about like this this is a situation. You know the enneagram. Will you? help me here. And it's like, uh, mm. okay, I don't want to tell you all of the things that I'm thinking. So let <laughs> me filter this all through Enneagram language. And I can tell you the same thing, but it's not my opinion. It's the Enneagram's opinion. Yeah, and yep, this yep. way I can say, stop being an a-hole <laughs> without, it's, it's not TJ saying, stop being an a-hole. It's totally. the Enneagram saying you're being an a-hole. <laughs> so. Yes. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I remember after graduate school, I'd have like 2000 hours of supervised experience. And I had to have a supervisor who had been in the field for years. And I was talking to her and she talked about, she said, one of your biggest jobs as a therapist is like, let's say somebody's walking by and they keep tripping on a rug and there's something underneath that rug and they keep tripping on it, tripping on it. Your job as a therapist is to pull up the rug and say, Hey, this is here. This is what mm-hmm. you're tripping on. 
And most of the time they'll say, no, I'm not. Sure. I mean, especially if it's like deeply and it's just realizing that that's part of my job. I remember like, oh no, what did I sign up for? I thought I was gonna like help people be happier. I don't know, it involved this. <laughs> um, but then you're gonna help, it's like, here's what you're tripping over, right? Yeah. Here are things that you will most likely commonly trip over. And yeah, no, it's just, it's a great, it's a great tool for pointing out those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You work with families. Yes, family. So it's, uh, yes, so I'm a marriage and family therapist. And so what that means is not that just, I, I just work with families. It means I'm more systemically trained than uh, licensed practicing counselors, social workers, things like that. There's a lot more systemic mindset. So if, if a client is in my office, even if he's an individual, we're still taking stock of all their relationships and how they exist relationally um, and how in couples, there's this circular causality. One person overfunctions because one person underfunctions and that person underfunctions because the other person overfunctions. It's yeah. not this one person is the problem. It's a circular systemic thing. And the way we're trained is a lot more to do with the systemic piece. So marriage and family therapists tend to be more equipped to, to deal with uh, work with couples and families. Yeah. Do I work with families a lot? Not as much um, because families don't, I mean, people want to send me their kids and say, fix my kids. I have nothing to do with it. I didn't make them this way. They're just broken or something, which is like, hey, have you thought about <laughs> the way you view your child maybe, maybe affecting their self-esteem? Completely wrong <laughs> about this, and it's entirely your fault. Like, maybe. hey, let's talk. Yes. Like, the Enneagram how- says. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about how you played a part in this. Absolutely not. Fix my kid. So mm. it's just some, I've had actually adults bring in their parents before, which is really cool. Really, really cool to like work through those dynamics. Yeah, so so that that all that to say, I don't just work with families. It's rare that I work with the whole family, but I do work with quite a bit of couples. Right, um, that's definitely more common than families as a whole. It may be uh, just my my circle. The most common question I get is about kids and how to use hmm. Enneagram with kids. Even yeah. if and there's always there's the balance there of of allowing of a, a kid is developing their personality hasn't fully formed. Um, it's hard to type things that are per- potentially moving mm-hmm. and, and, but there's still a lot of energy there, especially from my friends who believe that they have a child who's an eight and that generally are the folks who want to type their kid first is, so I've been listening to your podcast. And I think my kid is this number because this is the experience and I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And there's both the desiring to know their child, help their child build into sure. their child with a tool that's been super helpful for them. Mm. And yet there's, there's obviously there's the cautionary tale. So I, I would love wisdom on that front. Yeah. I get those questions all the time, right? That's that, one of the most common questions. It's, it's either, how do I know what my kid's type is? Or, or it's this like, my husband's a five. How do I get him to stop being annoying? <laughs> it's right. all like this very other person, um, other focused thing. Um, so usually, I don't know, I, I, I think, so kids, I, I tend to think that we're born on Enneagram number, but the patterns haven't quite developed yet. We, they're not set in stone. We will develop patterns, but the sort of our motivations are always there. What we've been disconnected from growing up is still there in the thing. Yeah. So I tell, uh, first of all, it feels like a cop-out answer, but I'll say, don't type your kids, bring it back to yourself every time. Like yeah. my kid is frustrating. My kid is doing this. They must be an Enneagram blank. How do I deal with that? Like, wait, pause. Why does that frustrate you? Because that's what you have control over. Mm. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's why does that frustrate you? What raw spots does that hit? Like is so much about the parents. Mm-hmm. The parent's job is not to fix their kid or make their kid a certain way. The parent's job is to regulate themselves, be present with themselves so they can be present with their kids, period. 
Love that. I said period. It's probably a little more complicated than that, but um, that, that's that's so much the core of it. Like what we cannot process, what we don't have the tools for, our kids will not learn the tools for. Mm. And so we will pass down our sort of our own unprocessed stuff to them. So the more work you can do on yourself, the better you'll be with your kids and the, the better that they will have more flexibility and have more tools in their use. They will be less rigid in their number, whatever it is, the more aware of your own number and your own patterns you are, I believe. I suppose a lot of us come to parenting with the belief that it's our duty or role to shape our children. Yes, 100%. There's so much pressure there too. So much pressure. Would you reject that? In a big way, yes. Ooh. Yes. This is helpful. <laughs> me. Take a uh, stand. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think because you are going to try to shape your kids through your own ego lens, your own personality lens. And if it doesn't match up with them, it's going to get dicey and you're going to want to force them. Um, or you're going to wound them in ways that you don't even realize. As we grow up and as we develop, what we need is the ability to feel what we feel and have a safe environment. We will, I, I truly believe that all of us will become healthy, thriving human beings if we can do that in a huge way. It's much more about the atmosphere and the environment than it is about the, the specific recommended target. Yes, Yes. People are wanting parenting hacks. And what do I say? What's the script I say to my kids? What do I do in this specific situation? I believe that if you are in tune with yourself and grounded, you will know what needs done. Hmm. Or if you don't in the moment, you can come back later and repair, which is a huge benefit to your kids. Like when I've had freakouts on my kids, when I've gotten really angry and cranky and upset, sometimes I don't have control over that in the moment. Right. My nervous system takes over. I'm fight or flight. Right. And so what I do have control over is coming back later and saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I talked to you like that. That was not, you don't deserve to be talked like that. Dad was upset. I hope you know that I love you. And what can I do? And just talking like that, because that also shows them like, because parents who don't want, like parents who want to be perfect for the kids, it's it's actually, okay. So this is a study called the blank face, blank face study. Have you heard that with babies? They would have a mom interact or a dad interact with a baby. And then all of a sudden the, the mom or the dad, I think it was just moms. It was a long time ago. Who knows? Um, blank face all of a sudden and how, what the baby would do to respond. The baby would like freak out, like, mm -hmm. hey, whoa, the baby would start hitting or throwing things or like anything for attention because we're so wired to be connected to. Um, and so when the mom would go like inter interact again, like the baby would, oh, okay, good, phew. like I'm connected, I'm not disconnected because that's what we need is connection. And what they continue to figure out from that study is it's actually healthier for our brain, for our kids' brains to disconnect and then reconnect over and over again than to attempt to never disconnect hmm. because that builds our tolerance of disconnection. When we know we disconnect from parents, they'll always come back and we always, we can trust in, and we can learn to regulate ourselves when we're disconnected because hmm. we know we will get what we need eventually. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which creates this secure attachment. So it's actually better to mis have mistakes in front of your kids and then come back and talk about it. Even neurologically, that's better. It, it, it makes us more resilient um, toward all sorts of things in life. Yeah. I imagine it's the case there there's, there's creating the environment where your child knows that they're loved, cared for. There's relational connection. There's also, there's dealing with bad behavior. Are you able to, to, uh, separate those in your mind in terms of here's who I want you to become versus here's the bad behavior I need to address. Mm, I think if we're solely, if we're solely focused on the behavior, then we're missing so much. Ooh. If the question yeah. is what is your behavior trying to accomplish? That's such a different shift. A lot of people say that even bad behavior is an attempt to reconnect is attempt to get the parents' attention. 
is attempt to get a need met of some kind. Mm -hmm. And if you stay curious about the need that's trying to be met, that shifts so much on how we see our kids. Like you did this and then you're bad for doing this or you shouldn't have done that. Like without saying, why did you do that? Where were you? Like, what were you, what was going on? What was a worse option? <laughs> um, what were you feeling? Kind of what drove you to that? Which is so different than focusing on the behavior itself. Yeah. Well, that's hand in hand with the Enneagram. That, yes. that like yes. what we're talking about is about motive. It's not about mm -hmm. like we have all these behaviors, but but the, the point of it is to get to why we do those things and, yes. and to learn that those behaviors are, are unconscious responses to our, our and to an unmet, yeah, an unmet need. Yep. And so to, to, to ignore the unmet need and focus on behavior is such a detriment, right? <laughs> such a detriment in so many ways. And it's, and even circling back to the initial question about typing your kids, like how many adults know their motivation for something? Like it takes a lot of work. Like what makes you think your kid would know the motive or that you know the motivation for your kids? Like, right. You just, my kids will do things. I'm like, man, that seems in my mind, cause I can't stop. That seems eight-ish or three-ish or whatever. It's like, it could be, you can give me like, I was thinking about this the other day, like in the shower or something. I think of one behavior that my kid did and I can come up with a motivation behind that behavior for almost every single Enneagram number. Right, right. <laughs> um, which, and my kid's like, hey, what's your motivation behind doing that? Like, I don't know, I'm four. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I just, they don't, they don't know those things. They don't care about those things right. and that's okay. And to right. try to force them to care about it and look at it when they're not ready mm -hmm. or if it's not safe, it's just, it's very unhelpful. It's more about, it becomes more about the parent and soothing them and relieving their anxiety so my, my kid's behaving better. Okay, I feel better as a parent. Right. I've heard a lot of folks, when speaking about kids, that stance is appropriate to think through that you have a withdrawn child or you have an aggressive child. I What I'm hearing in, in your language here is something I hadn't thought about is that you have an attention-seeking child or you have a mm. control-seeking child or you have a child who's naturally fearful and seeking security and those might be worth naming. Would, would you mm. be comfortable with that? I think so, but you also, well, you kind of, without realizing it, blended two very important things with the issue of attachment. I mean, have you heard of attachment before, kind of how our okay. caregivers relate to us? The biggest needs in attachment are identity and security. And you mm -hmm. kind of spoke to both of those in that. Sure. If we don't get those, then we will try to make those happen for us. So it's this identity piece. We need to be told that we're lovable and that we are special and that we are valuable, like those kinds of identity, it builds up our identity. If we don't do that, we can, it turns into this shaming ourselves or blaming other people or, right, it's sort of, we don't have that secure in us, so we try to find another way. And the security piece, um, if we don't get security, if we don't get regularity, uh, if there's secrets in the family, if there's stuff going on that we don't know, um, if we don't know what to expect ever in life, that can harm that security part of us. And so we tend to want control. And um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of pieces I don't know if that relates to what you're talking about. I, I heard you use that language and it kind of blew my mind for a second. So I wanted to share that. Can you re-ask your question? Yeah. Well, it, yeah. so so if I have a 10-year-old, some 10-year-olds will approach their parents with a very strong relational heart and mm. long for their attention in an emotional way. And some 10-year-olds want to do their thing and have power and oversight over their space. Mm. And some 10-year-olds, I imagine, are, are going to be a little bit more fearful towards the world. Those would be three descriptions of underlying feelings for the three triads for, for hearts who want attention, yeah. for eights, nines, and ones who want control, and five, sixes, and seven who might be security seekers. I haven't thought about 
in, you know, you don't need to type your kid in order to simply name. I think my kid really desires attention. Yeah, that's probably yes, helpful. Yes. Yes. So maybe the Enneagram can come in a few you know, years later, but maybe the vocabulary could be a worthy tool. Yeah, sure. Level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, yeah, that's a great. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really great point. I could give you. Let me let me spell out a scenario. So yeah. my two children. I suppose even if I didn't know the Enneagram, I know that one of my children has some significant fears. Mm. And one of my children really has control issues, issues mm. being, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase that, but certainly doesn't want, wants to be in charge of themselves and will push to get it. Sure. I mean, I they have a hard time letting go of control. Yeah. Mm. And certainly being told what to do, uh, manipulated, or even, you know, mm. as a parent, me saying, you know, it's time to go to school. That can be a huge mm. problem for the morning, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, since I know the Enneagram and now since they're both, you know, on the verge of adulthood and they are very intelligent and can process the information and do self-discovery with it, mm. um, we can, we can use that vocabulary, but, but I would have known 10 years ago, one was fearful and one was. Yeah, sure. Whether you had Enneagram control. language or not. Correct. And I think all human beings have that those all three of those needs from the centers: relationship, control, and safety. We all need those. And I think which enneagram number we land in, which center, we are more sensitive to a lack of that. Yeah. And so we're like struggling. I need more of this to be okay. That like I think that kind of that's how it can pop up in kids too. Like it's not that they my kids are two, three, or four. The only thing they need is relationship. No, they also need safety and security and autonomy and control. But it's like it's easier maybe for them to have that or be okay without having it versus relationship, mm -hmm. identity, connection. And so, yeah, seeing like the, the unmet need or at least the perceived unmet need in them is, can be very related to the heart, head or gut. Yeah. Is just to push into that, I don't know that I've put my thumb on this. Is it the case that for the three of us, we're all control seekers given our types, <laughs> but is surrendering control a primary healthy step for eights, nines and ones? Would that just oh, yeah. be a true thing? I think so. Yes. I As opposed so. <laughs> to other types. I think, I think it's probably, yeah, again, I, mean, I think it's helpful for everybody. And I, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I think that's helpful. For everybody. I think letting go of control is a gigantic step toward healing and error for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I wonder maybe if it's just more difficult for eights, nines and ones or, or scarier step. Maybe, I don't know. I think that, I, I, I think the, the shock points, the three, six, nine, I think mm -hmm. those will get, get this muddy for each type or for each center. But mm. I, I think it, it works like eight, eights and ones letting go of control is probably one of the, the, the most mm. valuable and also most difficult things. Whereas nines, it's like letting go of control of some things is really <laughs> important, but mm. taking control of other things is actually that's so true valuable yes but it's this weird like the nines need for control can seem so hidden right, right. it's like not only you control anything it's like you do right right <laughs> and it's but it's definitely a different step like eights and ones it's such a like i love this some of the advice i give it eights and ones is, is stop expecting yourself from other people <laughs> mm. and then but for a nine it's like it's it's like 
of course you don't expect yourself from other people. Right. Yeah. Of course. I don't not. know. It just seems easy. Yeah. With this the controlling, like I don't. Yeah. It's so it's so interesting. That's a great point with the shock points, the anchor points, whatever you want to call them. That it's a different growth journey around those center issues. Right. How would that materialize, real quick, TJ? Just so we can kind of do a complete picture for threes and sixes. So uh, for. Uh, Letting go of the need for attention and relationships in twos, threes, and fours. Twos and fours, they're, the growth for them focuses more on letting go of the need. Whereas for threes, it's it's simultaneously both. It's They need to let go of some things, but they need to embrace relationship in uh, in certain other ways like the, this is ha- part of how that that uh feeling repression works its way in it's because they they aren't engaged with their own feelings so they they need to let go of their control over how their image is perceived and at the same time they need to embrace control of how they can push other people how they can can like we've talked a lot about how threes can steamroll other people in in their pursuit of their goals mm. can i add to that a little bit please especially with that identity piece like that two and four because with three their sense of identity is such a weird mashup of what other people think of me and what i think of me and like mm. this what i think of me is filtered through what i think other people think of me right right <laughs> and so this kind of loss of their own sense of self what do i actually want outside of the filter of everybody else and or what culture says I should want or should mm-hmm. be like. That's so difficult for threes. So to almost like find their sense of it, because on the surface to tell a three to go after what they actually want seems like, well, duh. But like to go at what you actually want is right. so hard. I have a right. client who's a three and one day in my office, she said, wait, I hate going to the gym. <laughs> and for me, for months of therapy, I was like, why can't I go to the gym? Why can't I get myself going? Mm-hmm. I used to love it. She was like, I've never loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to look this way and people think I should. And it's a healthy thing. It's like, but I hate it. Yeah. And she had convinced herself that she liked it and wanted it. And she didn't. Like mm-hmm. It was such a disconnect from her own sense of identity and her own emotions about it. So it's like a going after what you want versus what other people want from you or I don't know. It's a weird mix with those, those anchor points. Right. I don't know if we can make that as clear as we did the nine. I don't know yeah, if we can. I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing there is it both for the nines and the threes. It's much more about the repressed center. You need nines need to mm. keep control in that. They need to act in the world. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And threes yeah. need to feel the feelings of other people. Yeah. As yeah. Well as you need feelings. to actually overdo your center rather yeah. than the other ones on the side, maybe need to kind of step back from it. Yeah. Whereas the nines and threes need to, I think same for the six. We can go to the six. Yep. Yeah. You want to yeah. talk about the six too? Five, sixes, and sevens who are, who have a heightened need for security. Fives and sevens need to calm down a little bit. And, <clears throat> uh, and that manifests itself in different ways. But sixes, it's, uh, the need to find security in themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of lean into the, the idea that there, there, there is a tremendous, uh, a, a vault of security available to them. Yeah. I think if a fives and sevens can really trust themselves, whether they're off yep. the mark or wrong, or, yep. <laughs> but yep. they can really trust themselves. Like I know what I'm doing and this is where the six it's so interesting, the head dominant and repressed, like sixes can think they're being so logical, mm-hmm. um, but they're not at all. It's so fear-based and it's so what if, what if, what if, and like they have a, 
I think because of that repressed thinking and dominant thinking at the same time, it turns into this, I think this, no, or, or what should I think? No, what do I, I don't know. It's, it's, it gets really confusing in the head of a six. I think mm. it's, it's what should I think? What do I need to do? No, no, no. Don't tell me what to do. I know what I need to think. And like this back and forth, which just keeps but it's, so lost. Is what I'm thinking head. about what I think. Is that, it's, is that okay? Yes. Will the you very, please like, tell me that it's right? <laughs> the very brain that comes up with their thoughts and emotions is in itself in question. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Could I trust any of this? <laughs> and so to learn to trust it and, and trust what they already know is a huge step to connect back to their heads and almost like a disconnection from others for the nine, three and a six, almost in a way, hmm. almost a shutting out all the other voices, body wise, emotion wise, or thinking wise, almost. I never said that before, but that seems to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Any last words on, on using the Enneagram with, with kids? Mm. I think just my favorite point, my favorite thing I tell people is just notice your own reactions to your kids. What upsets you about your kids? What behavior, what things they do that upset you? And then realizing that's so much about you mm-hmm. <laughs> and what, and what, yeah. And to so, sort of double down on a, on that point and, and how you made it earlier, like, like think about planes when the, the safety information that you're given on a plane, every single time you ever get on a plane <laughs> is that you need to put on your own mask first. Mm, yeah. And, and it doesn't matter how much you love your kid. You need to put on your own mask first. Yeah. I think that goes relationally too. marriages, friendships, people like there's such a huge question I get. Oh, we mentioned this earlier is what are my kids? This, what do I do? My spouse is this, what do I do? I'm always turning it back. Like, hold on. That's not the right question to be asking. Right. You're sort of projecting stuff and you were almost not looking at your own stuff, which plays a huge part in the relationship. Right. Is there eventually a place for saying, here are the dynamics out there that are really having a, uh, that I'm having a really hard time with. So it's, it's certainly the case. So say I come and I really do want to do inner work on myself and I, and I recognize I need to get my own inner life shored up so that I have some leverage. And yet at the same time, here are the 12 things that are, are breaking around me. I don't know. What do you mean? Like kind of how to, how to split sort of systemic contextual things versus internal things. Is that what you're saying? Or am I mishearing you? I mean, some folks are going to have kids who are struggling with self-harm or some Mm. folks are going to have, you know, Mm. they're going to be divorced and they're having to, to wrestle with, with the dynamics of a split family. Some are going to, um, you know, have had tragedies strike. And so they're having, there, there is shoring up your own inner life, but there is also the case that sometimes there really are things that need to be addressed in the family that, that affect, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's true. And you can do that without the Enneagram even, right? Like sure. I, I don't want people to use the Enneagram as like this uh, barrier between communicating. Like I have to know the number to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, no, you don't. You have to sit next to them and listen to them right. <laughs> to mm-hmm. communicate with them. And so I think it's a great point that you brought up. Like, yes, there are sorts of, it's not just Enneagram language that you need to talk to the kids about. Like, you just listen to your kids and you don't have to have the, and honestly, if you're struggling thinking you need Enneagram language to talk to your kids, maybe that's a message that you believe about your own inadequacy or your own incompetency. And you need something else to r- relate to your kids and you don't. Mm. What you have, you already, what you need, you already have, I think. Yeah. And just go to therapy too. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good word. Uh. (laughs) We're going to pause here in our conversation with Michael and pick up the second half on a later episode. 
You can find out more about Michael as well as links to his podcast and his Enneagram course for therapists at michaelshahan.com, which is in our show notes. That's Michael, S-H-A-H-A-N.com. You can also find links to our Patreon and our website and all of our stuff in the show notes as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love to have you rate and review on your listening platform of choice. Jeff just loves getting those stars and it helps other people find us as well. But the best thing you can do is share this episode with someone that you love. He's DJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook. Who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are. 